Hello and welcome to Bicon Podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicon. It's Wednesday, the 16th of September, the day after the historic ceremony at the White House yesterday. And joining me for post-match analysis is Ilan Goldenberg, who is the senior fellow and director of the Middle East Security Programme at the Centre for New American Security. Thank you very much, Ilan, for joining me. Oh, great to be here. So just as a, as a, as a brief introduction, uh, Ilan is a foreign policy expert, um, extensive experience within the government and within, uh, within uh, the think tank community as well, covering Iran's nuclear program, the Israeli-Palestinian relations and broader regional issues. Um, I should say Ilan also serves as the chief of staff and the special, sort of special envoy for Israel-Palestinian negotiations in the US uh, State Department in the previous uh, Obama administration. So that's, uh, that's also a very, very useful background when we come to discuss uh, what's on the agenda today. Um, Ilan, if, if we can start off kind of and, and, and frame it as, a, as someone that is uh, so uh, identified with the, uh, with the, with the Democrat uh, administration last time round, um, and let's be polite about it and call this the current administration's uh, less than conventional foreign policy. How did it feel watching the ceremony yesterday? Well, look, I mean, I think the ceremony was a positive. Uh, and I think that, you know, you can take partisan politics out of it uh, and say that whenever you have states normalizing relations in the Middle East, a region that has been so racked with conflict and instability, it's a good thing. Uh, so I was very happy to see, you know, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu with, um, you know, the uh, Emirati and Bahraini foreign ministers um, and President Trump. Like, that's a good thing. Uh, you know, I do, from a partisan political perspective, there are moments where, you know, President Trump inserted the political campaign here in the United States into his comments. Uh, that wasn't healthy. And it's pretty clear that he was using it for to some extent for his own political benefits. Uh, but, you know, I think overall it's a positive good. I mean, the other thing to remember about this is that um, I think it's a big deal. I think it is, um, as I said, a positive step, but I also don't necessarily view it as, as transformational as say the Israel-Egypt peace treaty or uh, the Jordan peace treaty, because you're not talking about you know, countries that were previously at war with each other. And you're also in Bahrain and UAE not talking about, they obviously matter, especially the UAE is an important player in the region, but you're not talking about Saudi Arabia, you're not talking about Egypt, you're not talking about one of the pillars of the region. Uh, and so absolutely a positive you know, step that we should all welcome. We should also be realistic about what it does and does not do. Sure. I mean, what did you make? Uh, what, what What was your initial reaction? What did you make of the of the content of the speeches uh, um, and the, uh, the and the, the dynamic of yesterday? What did you take from that? So, a couple of things. One, I think that's really important is um, that while President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu were there, you know, Mohammed bin Zayed chose not to come, um, and I think you know the the Emirati uh, Crown Prince, who's really the head mm. of state, um, and I think for a couple of reasons. One is sort of the differing dynamic. You know, Israel has always wanted and welcomed uh, this type of engagement with the Arab world and sees it as a net positive in its politics. While for MBZ, uh, this is much more complicated in terms of his own political constituency in, in terms of views at home. Uh, the other is also the difference in how MBZ right now 
is approaching, and the UAE in particular, is approaching American domestic politics versus how Prime Minister Netanyahu is approaching it. I mean, for Netanyahu, he's clearly put all of his eggs in the Trump basket, and he has no problem just making that clear. I think for MBZ and the Emiratis in particular, uh, they have, you know, they definitely have embraced Trump, but they've also realized that they've probably over-embraced him uh, and also over-embraced the Saudis. And we're very much seen in Washington as being associated with the Saudis and associated with Trump. Um, and they actually view this move as a way of distancing themselves a little bit from the Saudis and kind of signaling, hey, we are more pragmatic partners. Uh, and importantly, by emphasizing and, and taking annexation off the table, they're also doing something that's very positive for Democrats. I mean, if, if annexation had gone ahead, um, then I think you would be faced with a very challenging situation, let's say for President Biden in early 2021, with Democrats having firmly opposed it and having major concerns, which would lead to potential early confrontation between Israel and the United States and the new Democratic administration, which is a big political headache and frankly a distraction when there's so many other bigger issues on the table right now, like China and COVID-19 and things like that. And so for the Emiratis to take successfully push annexation off the table is also something I think that's very much welcomed by Democrats. Uh, and so um, those are a couple of, I think, some of the key takeaways. And it was also interesting um, that it was only uh, you know, MBZ and, or ABZ, the Emirati uh, foreign minister and the Bahraini foreign minister who uh, both mentioned the Palestinian issue. Uh, it wasn't even mentioned by President Trump or Prime Minister Netanyahu, which sort of tells you where it lies in, in sort of the order of priority. Sure. I mean, on to that, I mean, they, they mentioned it, but it, it was really only a, a, a name check in all in terms of kind of the, uh, the, the conventional kind of uh, watchwords which we're used to hearing. There was nothing on final status issues, nothing on 67 lines or, or, or land swaps or kind of the issues that we're used to be talking about. Um, the, the Palestinians largely kind of seem, uh, seem irrelevant to a degree in this. I mean, if you were advising the Palestinians, what, would you, what advice would you give them to make them uh, more relevant in the, in the current diplomatic game? Sure. So, so, look, the Palestinian approach has been to just object and fight this. Um, and I understand why they're doing it. And I understand their frustration and their feelings of betrayal. And they also have a pretty bad relationship with the UAE that, that is a lot more tied to... Um, you know, the fact that the UAE supports Mohammed Dahlan, who is one of, you know, Abu Mazen's chief rivals, and that sure. creates a sense of tension, right? Um, but I'm not sure that the Palestinian approach right now is very smart, um, because this is happening. Uh, and if I were them, I, I would sooner be, rather than trying to fight it, I would sooner be going to these Arab states and trying to get things out of it, you know, trying to get concessions from Israel in exchange for this. Um, but the reality is, look, I think what this, this tells you two things, right? There are those who say the Palestinians don't matter at all. The Palestinian issue is over. Nobody cares. Um, if that was the case, Israel uh, giving up or, or, or at least putting off annexation for a number of years as a key condition for this agreement um, would not have been on the table, right? So that the fact that the Emiratis asked for that is a pretty strong indicator that yeah, the Palestinian issue still matters. But on the other hand, you know, the argument that 
there will never be peace between you know, some of the Arab states and Israel without progress on the Palestinian issue or a two-state solution is also kind of being disproven by that, right? It matters, but it doesn't matter as much as it used to. Um, and so that's how the Palestinians should approach it. I mean, I also think this idea that somehow, you know, peace with the Arabs would lead to peace with the Palestinians and that the Arab states were the key to all of this is kind of a false notion and has been for a long time. The Arab states have their own priorities and increasingly are frustrated with the Palestinians. So maybe this is a reality check for the Palestinians. At the end of the day, it's got to be about them, not about the Arab states. And they're not, they can't count on the Arab states for this, at least not the Gulf states. I mean, the ones that really matter in all of this, I think the countries that actually are most invested in the Palestinian issue in the Arab world, it's the Jordanians, right? Who actually you know, have millions of Palestinians living in their territory who share a large border uh, with the West Bank. Um, with the future Palestinian state. Uh, and, you know, that's where the focus and energy of both Palestinian policy needs to be in terms of engaging with the Arab world and frankly, American policy, right? I mean, we've, you know, the, the fixation the Trump administration has had on the Gulf states, um, they've made progress there, but they've entirely cut out and ignored the Jordanians. And we have Israel-Jordan relations really at, at its lowest point in 25 years since the 1994 uh, peace treaty. Um, and that's, I think, a much more significant strategic, you know, problem, right? Like trading UAE for Jordan is not a good deal for, for Israel. And so I think resuscitating that and making progress there is also important. Mm. I mean, just it's interesting on, on that when I've been talking to Israeli officials and, 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 the, and what they've said is that they hope that actually these, these new ties with the, uh, with the Gulf states can act kind of as an incentive to, to Jordan to get back in the game. I mean, you're, you're right that the Israeli-Jordanian ties are at a, perhaps a, a, real, a real low right now, and they have been for two or three years. But there's all sorts of suggestions about reviving the, uh, the Red to Dead Sea project, for example, and maybe bring in UAE funding. So they, they could be a way to, to kind of to combine, to combine issues there. Um, I wonder, just looking at the, now we've, we kind of, we didn't see the full text when it was signed, but it's now been released last night. Was there anything in the, in the actual text of the agreements that stood out to you as being particularly significant? I mean, look, first, and actually just one other point on that. I do think there's an opportunity with Jordan that has less to do with the UAE deal and more with annexation coming off the table. The, 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 mm. the, the, the threat of annexation was making it almost impossible for the Jordanians to engage with Israel. Um, and so if that is genuinely off the table for a number of years, I think that will make a huge difference um, in terms of creating opportunity for Israel, Jordan, and engagement. Um, on the text of the document, look, I thought it was quite, you know, anodyne <laughs> overall. Um, you know, I thought what was interesting that wasn't in there um, was, you know, well, maybe let's start with what was in there that was positive. Just lots of modes of cooperation, right, and opportunities for cooperation. And that matters a lot. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, one of the reasons that the UAE really went for this also is um, the UAE is one of the better run and managed countries in the region economically and societally. And, you know, they're looking, they see in Israel an opportunity, um, a major economic opportunity. And Israel should see in the UAE a major economic opportunity. And especially in the aftermath of COVID-19 with crashing oil prices, uh, and slowing economies. I mean, there's real opportunities here for cooperation. And so I thought that, you know, the, the effort there um, and the detail there, which was really the focus of the agreements, was, was a positive one. Um, you know, and so 
we'll see where all that goes. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, um, you know, what was interesting that wasn't in there was, again, very little about the Palestinians. Um, I thought it was interesting. There was some concern, at least in the initial statement that came out in August, there was some language in there about the Trump plan that threw into question you know, sort of uh, the continued support for the status quo and the Temple Mount, Ram el Sharif. Mm -hmm. like, that language was excised. There was nothing about that in there, which is good. Um, there, the only reference to the Trump plan recalled the Trump plan. Recall is a word you use in these documents when you don't, when one of the parties doesn't want to say they support or endorse or promote, right? There's no commitment to the Trump plan. Recall, because the Emiratis were not willing to, to move beyond recalling the Trump plan. Um, you know, so I thought that was interesting. But there's also no references, for example, to, you know, UN Security Council Resolution 242 or some of the traditional parameters as you talked mm. about. Um, which I think was probably a nod to the, the Trump plan, or at least to the Trump guys. That's like kind of the middle ground they came down on between, you know, I imagine American administration that would have liked to see much more full-throated endorsement of their ideas for Israeli-Palestinian peace. Um, and, you know, the Arab states who would be much happier to just stick with some of the traditional parameters and statements that have long been the basis uh, for, you know, really since 1967 for the conflict. So I think that the, the solution was to really not reference any of it. Um, you know, and so, and then, yeah, there was not a lot in there about security cooperation, uh, which is the other key component here um, and motivation, right? It's this idea of working together against Iran. It's this idea of working together against extremism and terrorism. Um, but I understand why you wouldn't want that in a public document like this that would only just provoke and um, you know, instead, like, keep it happy, keep it, you know, about, you know, cooperation and unicorns and love for everybody, um, and keep the more sensitive stuff out of a, a public tre peace treaty agreement like this. And it's interesting you comment on that, because I, I, one, one of the aspects that struck me in the, in the peace and security section, I've got it here in front of me, I'll just, I'll just quote from part of it, it says, the undertaking to prevent terrorist attacks against each other from respective territories, that's all fine. And then it goes, as well as deny any support for such activities abroad or allowing such support on or from their respective territories. And I wonder if that was a reference to kind of to uh, Iranian revolutionary guard activity in, in Dubai, um, bus their businesses, their shell businesses, money laundering, and if we can expect some activity on that front. Yeah, I, I, I don't think you're going to see a change. I mean, there's already pretty deep cooperation between mm. Israel and, you know, UAE and some of the other Gulf states on Iran issues. I don't think you're going to see a dramatic change like this happen on that front because it already is so deep on intelligence sharing, on, you know, security cooperation. Um, I would be pretty surprised if you saw a dramatic shift in terms of what the U UAE does in um, and what, what is allowed by, for Iran to do in Dubai. Um, I mean, the reality is Abu Dhabi and Dubai have very different perspectives on Iran. Um, you know, Dubai is right across the water. It's, it's money comes from trade as a major hub. Um, and mm. a large chunk of that comes from Iran. So the US government has a long history of sort of nudging and pushing Dubai um, to, to stop some of this stuff. And actually it's had an impact. I mean, and, and Things are a lot better now than they used to be, but some of this stuff's gonna continue. Um, I don't see that as 
I'd have a hard time seeing that as part of the actual deal. Um, but there's also, look, I mean, the reference to non-interference and I mean, they're generally across the region. I think everybody needs to stop funding some of these proxies. And that includes the Emiratis who do some sketchy stuff in Libya and Yemen and elsewhere. Um, I think these proxy wars are really, which the Iranians are obviously very guilty of, um, are a major problem and exacerbator of, of, of challenges in the region. Mm. Um, we heard when, uh, before the ceremony, when, uh, when Netanyahu and Trump met in the Oval Office, um, the uh, President Trump made a comment that the more countries, even said five or six, are expected to follow suit. Um, what, what did you make of that? How, how quickly and, uh, and, and, and how realistic is that, do you think? I'm a little skeptical on five or six. That sounds like, I wouldn't be surprised if Oman or Morocco went next. Mm. Um, both because they are, again, not countries that have ever been at war with Israel, because they are more agnostic on these things. For the Omanis, there is also a bit of a intra-GCC, you know, good relations with Israel. The fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu visited there, um, not only is it partially because the Omanis generally try to have an attitude of engaging with everyone, um, but also because it buys them points in Washington, which for the Emiratis was a big part of this. Um, you know, so for those reasons, I can see the Omanis going soon. The only challenge they have is they've recently had a succession with the death of Sultan Qaboos, which I don't know if that makes it hard to move on significant foreign policy moves uh, right now. Um, yeah, the Moroccan, that's, the, that's, that's, the, that's the assessment in Israel, I think, that, uh, that with, the, with that change, it needs to, things need to settle first before, it, uh, before things can really progress. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always this rumor of Sudan also. Um, mm. But I think that's very much the American administration trying to tie Sudan coming off the terrorism list in exchange for this, which I think the Sudanese really don't want to do. Um, and I don't think is the proper tying together. Um, you know, and then, but, I, but the, big, the big question is the Saudis. Um, of course. I'm deeply skeptical that they're gonna do this anytime soon, um, at least as long as King Salman is alive, right? Like MBS has, I think, different views on this, but this isn't, portfolio where when MBS has stepped out too far, his dad has pulled him back, right? And so as long as King Salman is around, I think that Saudi will take a more traditional perspective. And, and look, one of their big interests, in addition to countering Iran, is this, you know, preserving their status as keepers of, you know, the two great mosques. Um, and, you know, engagement with Israel you know, especially without progress on the Palestinians, leaves them vulnerable to the types of sort of religious attacks um, and criticism from extremists or from Iran that make them vulnerable on this point. Um, and so I think for them, it's a much more sensitive issue. So, you know, I'm pretty skeptical the Saudis are going anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. Whilst, whilst the king is around, he's probably still committed to his brother's uh... Um, API and that's uh, and that's the, that's still the game in town in uh, Riyadh at least. Um, one of the other aspects of the deal, obviously, that Netanyahu denied was that the the US will now supply the uh, the advanced F-35s to the UAE. How how significant is that? And how uh, using your kind of your your expertise in in Washington, what sort of response is that going to get in Congress and uh, and the trade off that Israel may ask for in terms of keeping up the uh, the qualitative military edge? 
Well, it's very complicated. Um, you know, usually this, and I worked at the Pentagon for a while in the office that dealt with these issues. Um, and, you know, we're sort of doing it backwards for Trump to cut a political deal first and then to try to go backwards and look at the technical issues. Before you even get to Congress, you know, you really put the defense experts, Israeli and American together to assess it uh, and figure out what is and is not doable um, and what it means for Israel's military edge. Um, and it's hard because the F-35 is the most advanced aircraft we have. So I don't know exactly how you offset that with the Israelis, right? Like it's much easier to sell F-15s and F-16s into the region and then you give Israel F-35s and that's clear offset. Um, and then you get beyond that to Congress where there's a lot of skepticism about this, both because of Israel's QME as well as you know, the Emirati role in Yemen, um, which I think created a lot of concerns. Um, and so that also is going to raise objections. So I don't see the F-35 deal. This is a long, hard slog. Um, and finally, there's a challenge in that for, is for Israel, in some ways, the UAE having F-35s is not that challenging or not that big of a problem. You know, the UAE is pretty far away. Um, it's still a small country. Um, but it's very hard to see a scenario where the UAE gets F-35s and then the U.S. does not give Saudi F-35s or does not come under tremendous pressure from Saudi Arabia. Like, it becomes a lot harder to say no to Saudi. And like, if Saudi were to get F-35s that can be placed in air bases very close to Israel, um, you know, that really changes the, the QME situation in the region. So it's partially also a political decision to give something to the, significant to the UAE and then say no to Saudi that I think will be quite hard. Um, but it seems we'll have to wait and see how this all goes. I think this will, the F-35s uh, deal will play out over a number of years, not weeks. Mm. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you mentioned earlier that kind of how the, 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 the Gulf states are kind of boxing slightly clever and more sophisticated with keeping up some, some bypasses and support. There was, a, there was one story I saw in the, in the Israeli media suggesting that, that Trump had warned uh, Netanyahu not to reach out to Biden. Do you think that sounds uh, credible? I mean, Trump might have done that or not done that. But I think, I mean, Joe Biden, for his part, has been incredibly careful about not really engaging much with foreign leaders uh, through this election cycle. Um, and that is because, if you remember what happened in 2016, um, when Mike Flynn and the Trump team during the transition, and Jared Kushner too, interfered directly with Obama administration policies by going to foreign governments. Uh, and that was really seen as breaking a taboo in American politics regarding and governing, where you have one president at a time. And so traditionally, you know, presidential candidates have met with some foreign leaders uh, during the campaign um, you know, it's kind of normal, but I think you take the combination of COVID-19, which has really stopped travel and this hyper awareness of, of, of the bad faith and violations of, of norms in 2016. And I really think the Biden campaign is not interested in meeting with foreign leaders this time around. So I wouldn't make too big of a deal about Netanyahu not seeing Biden like one way or the other. I don't think it's an American slate of Israel. I don't think it's an Israeli slate of the Democratic Party. I just think that like, it's generally like the situations like it, 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 on both sides was like, nah, this is not a good idea to do at this time. Fair enough. Thank you for that. Um, 
But uh, more broadly, in terms of uh, what a what what a President Biden uh, what a presidency presidency would look like in terms of foreign policy, Middle East policy. Um, how do you think what, what do you think he would be doing in terms of like the Israeli Palestinian front and this uh, emerging alliance with the with Israel and the and the region? Sure, I don't know exactly um, what he has said. And just going by his public statements, um, you know, I think he would try to reset the U.S.-Palestinian relationship. He's talked about reopening the consulate uh, in Jerusalem. He's not going to move the capital, you know, uh, from or, or the embassy. Uh, but, you know, just to try to make clear that, you know, Jerusalem is a final status issue that needs to be negotiated between the parties, which has been the traditional American position. He's talked about resuming uh, assistance and resuming uh, a, a funding for UNRWA um, and basically resetting the American role. Um, I think that that is going to be a, a step one. And then I wouldn't expect, I mean, this is something I think, you know, um, Israelis and Palestinians have to start getting used to. Like we have huge problems here in the United States right now with COVID-19, with China, with our own, you know, internal domestic politics. Um, and the Israeli-Palestinian issue, first of all, the Middle East is becoming less important than it used to be. Uh, and then the Israeli-Palestinian issue within the Middle East is becoming less important than it used to be. So I think the days of presidents um, fixating and spending, a, and secretaries of state spending a ton of time on this issue, like I wouldn't expect to see that in the Biden administration. I think it'll be a priority. I think it'll be one of amongst a number of priorities. I think there'll be you know, steps taken, but I don't think we'll be rushing back to try to do final status negotiations and high profile meetings. I think there will be an effort to continue to encourage the types of normalization that we saw seen between the UAE, Bahrain and, and Israel. You know, the vice president uh, welcomed that, um, but I wouldn't expect some new huge peace push. I wouldn't expect like a George Mitchell type envoy on day two or a big effort like the one John Kerry led in 2013 and 14. I think it'll be much more about just trying to reset and, and put the conflict in a better trajectory and start to build for the long term to create opportunities, um, eventually, hopefully to preserve and eventually get back to two states. Mm, very interesting. I, mean, I, think that, I think that's one of the one of the uh, assessments shared by Israel and the Gulf is that there is a general kind of long term um, withdrawal or, or, or disengagement of the US from the region, therefore kind of another impetus to kind of to rely on on local local alliances as well instead of the uh, instead of the US. Um, Ilan, thank you very much indeed. We've taken up a lot of your time and that was really very useful. So thank you very much indeed for joining us and uh, hopefully we can talk again and hear your insights from, uh, from DC in the future. Sure, pleasure, pleasure joining you.